Today on Career Lab with Levi and Bobak, we connect with Paul Levine, a journalist, lawyer, author, and Hollywood screenwriter. Find out if you have what it takes to do one of those careers, because Paul did them all. Welcome to Career Lab with Levi and Bobak. I'm Levi Maya in the Lighthouse Studio with Bobak Bebahanian. Bob, how are you? You know, I was doing just okay, and then when I arrived at the Lighthouse Studio and I saw this rotary phone waiting for me <laughs> on the couch, it, it, it brought me up about four notches. Um, I left that there for you. Yeah. 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 Does it work? It does work. I'm yeah. waiting. Um, I'm waiting for a device that lets me make it a Bluetooth headset for my cell phone. And then, then, then I can get the satisfaction of slamming it down when I want to hang up on someone. I enjoyed it, you know, as as a a young eight year old, just because if you were, you know, if you wanted to call someone and then you decided halfway through you didn't want to call them, you had plenty of time to to, to decide to not make the call. <laughs> versus now, where it's just a button or I'm just talking, and nobody knew who was calling. Yeah, you know, there was no caller ID. Yeah. So True. that was a big one. Caller ID was a big one. The the big first invention I remember with the phone because, you know, you'd call some friends and I'd just get busy signals for hours. Mm -hmm. No one knows what that means anymore. And when it was a rotary, it was a lot of work to call them back. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. Should we should we get into our let's our get guest? into our yeah. guest? Yeah. Tell so us who we have. So excited for, for today's guest. Um, uh, the author of 23 novels and the winner of the John D. McDonald Fiction Award. Uh, Paul Levine is a former trial lawyer. He also wrote 20 episodes of the CBS military drama JAG and co-created co the Supreme Court drama First Monday, starring James Gardner and Joe Montaigne. The international bestseller To Speak for the Dead was his first novel and introduced readers to linebacker-turned-lawyer Jake Lassiter, his 2023 novel, Early Grave, was termed a witty and complex legal thriller by Publishers Weekly in a starred review. Paul's also the author of the critically acclaimed Solomon vs. Lord series of legal capers. He's a member of the Penn State's Society of Distinguished Alumni and graduated with honors from the University of Miami School of Law. Welcome to the show, Paul. How are you today? Thank you, Bob. It's fun to be here in the Lighthouse studio and uh, look forward to chatting with you guys. Yeah, we're, we're really excited to have you. You know, let's let's get right into it, Paul. Um, you know, what what inspired you to begin a career in law? I was a very young reporter for the Miami Herald. I was 21, just at, just out of Penn State Journalism School. And I was doing general assignment, and I was writing features for the Sunday Magazine, which no longer exists. Um, and the person who was covering criminal court took a different job, took a job with the National Enquirer. And nobody wanted to take the beat, criminal court. I was the newest person, the youngest person in the newsroom. They assigned me to the courthouse, even though I had never actually been in a courthouse or watched a trial, or read a legal opinion, or read a brief. And I went over there thinking I would hate it, and I loved it, and I thought, I want to write about what I'm seeing. I want to do it. And that's that's what happened a long time ago, Bob. 
So, so when you got into law, uh, you know, I, I noticed you, you in your bio you mentioned um, a trial lawyer. You know, for for those that don't know, what is that, and then what uh, really gravitated you towards that aspect of law? Well, I was covering criminal court, which has all that built-in excitement. Uh, but I ended up doing civil trial work. There is a similarity, though. And the similarity, of course, is in the preparation for it. It's in representing your side of the story. And and there's a kind of a tie-in here then later with, with writing books and writing fiction. And that is the first thing that struck me on going into my first courtroom in, 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 as a 21- and 22-year-old reporter was that it seemed like a stage play. Um, Every character, the prosecutor, the judge, the defense lawyer, the defendants, the jurors, they're all in their places. It's very organized. Things take place in a pattern that is established, and you have to do it. And it reminded me, and I always loved the the theater uh, as a kid and until today, and I thought, this looks like fun to be in a stage play. Um, and, and that's what I gravitated to when I got out of law school, I went with a firm that did, that did civil trial work. You've reinvented yourself several times. And I think that's a really interesting thing when I hear people's career paths, take all these different detours and, and, and have all these interesting stops along the way. And I'm really interested in how people reimagine the things that you're doing. You've done a lot of really interesting things, a lot of things that take that most people couldn't dream of doing in a lifetime. You've done multiple times in your life. What did those diversions, those career changes look like? How did you make that happen? Well, I wouldn't give advice to people to do what I did, <laughs> uh, even though it, it worked out for me. Because what I did was I left a partnership in a national law firm, now an international law firm, where I had a pretty safe seat. I, I liken it to having a, an endowed chair at a university. You know you're going to be there. You know the money is going to be there. And as you get older and go up the ranks, you have these teams of people working for you. Um, I didn't enjoy it. So when I answered your first question, I made it sound all this romance of the criminal court and all the world's a stage. Now, 17 years later, and that's what we're talking about, I was having a burnout, midlife crisis, whatever you want to call it. I wasn't getting satisfaction out of it. And and what actually happened is I got this big promotion. They called it a promotion. I was being assigned to be the lead defense counsel for a particular client that manufactured asbestos. Mm. So now you kind of see where this is going. Yeah. Um, and, And, of course, I'm part of the vietnam war generation where we protested everything on campus from dow chemical to everything else and now they're saying paul what we're giving you a promotion you're going to represent xyz corporation you would know the name if i said it in every case east of the mississippi river put together a team and you'll run it at a substantial increase in in pay and that was like saying to me I want you to kill all the ducks in the pond. 
it was just in within a week i quit my partnership had not published a book i was trying to write a book but i basically left to become a freelance writer so looping back this is not the career advice that i would give the best career advice and you know this everyone knows this don't quit your day job right so did you go from law to writing books was that the next step that that was the next step now there was sort of an interim step and that is i i quit my partnership i quit that big law firm but i had a bunch of cases of my clients so for about a year and a half i was a, a sole practitioner wrapping up those cases but not taking new cases and while i was doing that i was writing a book and it happened that in, in the course of a trial down in the Florida Keys at a beautiful little courthouse in Ala Mirada, I was in the middle of a trial. And this is before cell phones, by the way. I went out to use the pay phone, which was outside the courthouse on the, on the, on the Gulf of Mexico side. And I called my agent in New York and he said, I, I have four offers for your novel. And that's how I knew I had become a writer. At that point, you say you knew you'd become a writer. At that point, were you like, okay, that is over. This is what I'm doing now. And now all of my energy is going towards this. That's what, yeah, that's exactly what I did. And I'm still going to stick with the earlier advice that 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 worked out for me. Um, Every year was not a flush year. Let's go stay at the Ritz Carlton. Um, and many of my, I have many friends who were lawyers who became novelists or nonfiction writers, at least several of them. Most of them kept their hand in, still practice law part-time, uh, sometimes what's called of counsel to a law firm, sometimes just on individual cases. I didn't do that. I wanted to just leap in, sink or swim, and that's what I did. And, and there were some lean years. There were some good years. Mm-hmm. The, uh, you know, the next step was getting into television. And um, a- again, not a normal route. You know, in television writing in Hollywood, after the age of 40, you're considered too old. I got my first job in television at age 51. And that worked out for a few years. And then I went back to writing novels again. And that, that job in television, it was that JAG or was that a that, that was JAG. I had actually freelanced two scripts for JAG while I was writing novels. And then Don Belisario, the creator of JAG and the person who I co-created a show with uh, that didn't, didn't do well, uh, unlike JAG, which went on for 10 years, uh, he said he had a spot on the staff. Would I want to come out and be a writer producer? And uh, I asked one question. I said, uh, "Is there health insurance?" <laughs> he said, "Yeah, you're." I was already a member of the Writers Guild, so there was there was health insurance. And I said, "I'm on my way." Did you ever have a moment where you felt uh, this imposter syndrome, like this can't really be me, like I'm well. 
I don't know if it's technically imposter syndrome, but maybe it is or a branch of it. And that is, I always felt that at any moment this career could end, that either I would lose whatever skill and talent I had I had previously, or people would simply say, oh, okay, we've, we've read him, he's over, let's go on to, to, the, to the next one. The good thing about writing is that, you know, unlike, let's say, running track, you, you can keep doing it. And, and the mind stays sharp. What was having it like? Said, having said that, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and it's amazing the things that come back to you when you're writing, personal experiences that might have happened decades ago that you can now tap into to use. So, but yeah, yes, it's not always roses and champagne. What was it like writing for JAG when a show is at as popular as it was as you're a part of it? I mean, you mentioned it ran for 10 years. I believe it also um, spawned NCIS. Yeah. I, that's a big deal. So what, what's it like when you're in that? Does it, does it add pressure? Do you try to not find yourself writing differently because of how popular the show is? Well, the format, the structure was completely foreign to me when I went on staff. And I came in the sixth year. So there's already this history of 150 episodes. And I couldn't read all those scripts, but I got an idea of the arcs of the characters and where we were going in the sixth season. But it's so completely different than writing your own book with your own characters. So not only in television... If you're not the showrunner creator, if you're a writer producer on staff, you're dealing with someone else's characters, and in this case, with a giant history. Mm-hmm. So I found that challenging. I found the form kind of interesting. You know, the biggest difference between uh, scripts and novels is external and internal. The camera. Is gives you this external look at people. Unless you're going to do voiceover, which is sort of frowned upon these days as being old-fashioned hackneyed. Unless you're going to do voiceover, you never go inside the character's head, right? You just hear the character talk, see what the character is doing. In novels, you have the luxury in, of point of view, not a camera point of view, of going into the character's head. If you write in first person, as, as I've have done with the Jake Lassiter series or in shifting point of view, third person, as I've done with Solomon versus Lord series, you have this great luxury and fun of seeing everything, every scene, every other person from inside your character. So this was a new storytelling technique for me, though everyone else on staff was really experienced. It was one of the oldest staffs in Hollywood, Law and & Order and JAG. Mm-hmm. And, and thankfully, otherwise I'd never have gotten a job. But these were people who'd been doing it for 25 years. And I had to kind of learn on the fly. The big elephant in the room with the writer's strike is, of course, AI. And what that means for writers now and then in the future. I think they're smart to address that now. 
What do you think the effect of AI is going to be? Let's just go in the short term uh, when the strike well, is right over. Right now, Levi, I think AI is just in its infancy. Um, I use Chat GPT and uh, Google Bard every single day, but I'm basically using it right now the way I use Google. I ask very specific questions, get very specific answers. And I'm going to say to you that each of them has about a 15 to 20% error rate yeah. on the things I ask because I double check everything. Uh, now, that is a far cry from what it's going to be in three to five years, maybe shorter. And that is, you will be able to write original scripts in AI. Maybe you can now. I don't know. If you can, maybe the studios are hiding that because it is such a contentious part of the negotiations. And that is, let's say you have a show in its sixth season. If you fed into the computer the first 150 episodes and then said in your prompts, um, in the next episode, uh, uh, Commander Harmon Rab is going to steal a jet off of an aircraft carrier and fly over North Korea, write me an episode. I think right now they could probably do that. And uh, is that a little scary? Yes. Is it going to be resolved in this strike? I don't know. I've played around a little bit like that with it. And I've noticed that it's sort of like a solid C plus student, right? Like when it comes to creativity, you know, you'd say, well, this is, yeah, it, it's a, it seems original, but it's not anything super engaging. It's particularly with comedy. I've noticed that chat GPT just does not get comedy, but it does seem to do a pretty good job of understanding the way characters might act. If it's, if you're using characters that it's aware of, you know? So yeah. Did, I, didn't you tell me, did you ask it to write a script? I asked yeah. it. Yeah. I asked it to write a script about uh, Seinfeld. Yeah. And I fed in some prompts and did this thing. And it kind of got the idea that like George was neurotic and Jerry was obsessive compulsive and Kramer was wacky. And it it wrote appropriate dialogue for them, but uh, it wasn't but funny it wasn't at all. Good. It wasn't good. It was like a bad episode <laughs> where the characters were in character, but just the creativity was lacking. So the spark, I guess you'd say, was missing. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think anyone does. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I find that um, when I ask historical questions, um, and I'm writing a book now that's set in 1937 in Hollywood, so most of my questions are historical. It really gets a lot of things wrong. Factually. And, uh, the names of movies, the names of actors in movies at a particular time, and it always does it so quickly and with such apparent authority, you want to believe it. <laughs> Check yeah. it elsewhere. But then I, I write them back, and I say, I think you were wrong, blah, blah, blah. And they immediately say, I'm sorry, like it's a real person who's really sorry. You know, they yeah. go, well, I, I hope I didn't make it cry. I'm sorry, you're right. Here's the correct answer. Well, why didn't you get it the first time? Yeah. I think it's about saving processing power. I think it's like, well, we're going to do the easiest thing. It's, it's kind of like a, a C plus student, right? It's going to do the easiest thing possible. If they get scolded, then they'll, you know, they'll try a little bit harder next time. But they're trying to minimize the amount of time and resources it takes to generate these answers. And uh, maybe uh, maybe we'll see a little bit um, more premium versions come out that are, are more powerful. But for now, I, I think the spark is missing and we'll see if 
if future iterations of AI are able to capture that spark. That'll be kind of scary. But the natural language of it is, is uh, it's hard to deny that it's impressive. Paul, once the, um, the, the strike is, is resolved, what advice do you have for that 50-year-old who wants to be a Hollywood writer? <laughs> well, I hope that 50-year-old has a job lined up or <laughs> get on a staff. I, it's a really, really tough business. It's tough to break into. And then, no matter how good you are, and now I, I'm talking about episodic series and series on networks and streaming, you know, your show may get canceled after three weeks or 13 weeks, and you're, you're out on the street again. Um, it, it, there are obviously a few showrunners who have had numerous hits, and, uh, you know, they have yachts and, and homes in Montecito right down the road here from the Lighthouse Studio. But um, it, it's a very, very tough business, hard to break into, hard to stick around for your whole career. So I'm not sure. It's like I speak to journalism students a lot. And because I love newspapers, but would, would you recommend pe young people right now to be seeking a career in newspapers? How, how could you do that? Not in Santa Barbara, no, anyway. No, or, or, <laughs> or, anywhere. or news yeah. television. Or know? news television. I, I have, yeah. I have mm -hmm. friends who have, you know, uh, uh, siblings, younger siblings or younger friends in college and they're asking me about a, a life in t television journalism and I, I pretty much tell them don't do it. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the print journalism, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when people, freelance writers could make a living pitching magazines and, and selling fiction to magazines, whether it was, you know, Esquire or GQ or Playboy. In, in, in Sports Illustrated and making really decent livings. Well, that, those days are gone. And newspapers uh, have lost 60 to 70% of their newsrooms. So I'm getting depressed talking to you. <laughs> so if, you know, obviously writing a common theme, um, especially with, with three of your four, you know, major career turns, and I, I know there's a lot more writing probably in law that, that I'm realizing. Is there a, a specific common trait that you have that you think, you know, younger folks would be good for them to have looking to get into a, a career with, with writing in, in, in any aspect? Is there something? Well, yeah. I mean, you've, you've hit something on the nose, Bob, and that is that one common element between being a lawyer, particularly a trial lawyer, and a novelist or a nonfiction writer is you're a storyteller and you have to enjoy telling a story in novels. You do it in the three act structure that came down to us from Aristotle in a courtroom. Uh, we're in front of a judge. There's this old saying lawyers have you tell them what you're going to tell them. You tell them, and then you tell them what you told them, which is sort of a three-act structure. It's not the same thing. But it's sort of. So you have to do that. And if you're an author and you're on a podcast and you've gone to author school, whatever that would be, you always hold up a copy of your book, your latest <laughs> book. You absolutely have to do that. Early grade, which you referred to, 2023. And 
you try you try to eke out a living. Uh, one of my very first appearances in in a, a book signing and a speech to a ladies group in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The first question was, this was from a little old lady. I think it was Hadassah of Boca Raton, actually. Was so you're making any money at this? And I said, no. I can, I'm going to do my old Jewish guy. I go, no, I make a living. Uh, she said, I have a daughter. Are you married? Of course. <laughs> you don't go into this to make money, to make a fortune. You don't go this, you know, you want a fortune by the Burger King next to the junior college campus. We have one in Miami, so that, that comes to mind. You do this because you love it, you do it because you you have this burning desire inside you to be that storyteller. I liken it to a virus. You sort of can't help it. Uh, it's burning inside of you. Let's get this story out. What are some of the aspects of collaboration in a team when you're writing that are or maybe challenging for you to acclimate to coming from a world of being in your own head dealing with, as you said, characters that you created. How's that transition well, work when you're in the writer's room versus in your own office yes, work? That's a, that's a great question. And uh, the writer's room in television, now it varies a lot. In comedy, there's a real writer's room where your script gets passed around and six different people try to improve your one joke. In in drama, and it's different on different shows, you don't really get a critique from all the other writer-producers. The showrunner or the chief writer will give you a critique and send you back you know, to, to write more. But, but it is collaborative in both comedy and in drama in the sense that the beginning of the season, you all sit together. And there's a big board in front of you. Okay, we have 24 episodes. Network, old days. Um, this is where our characters are starting. How are we going to get them through this season? What's going to happen? What are the complications? What are the obstacles? What are the love interests? Uh, who's going to die in dramas? Uh, and it is collaborative. And for me, I, I was a little afraid of it. I thought it was challenging, but it was fun. And I'd been sitting in my study by myself for years and years. And now I get to sit with these guys and we have lunch brought in from a nice place and coffee brought in. And it was fun. It was, I, I enjoyed that part of it. One of the things we've, we've touched on in a few of our shows, Paul, is the importance of, of mentors. Um, is there one that, that you had that that stands out for you? Well, uh, rather than a mentor, and, and I did work with Don Belisario, one of the, the premier creators of dramatic shows and history of television, you know, going back to Magnum P.I., right. the original. And, the real and home one. Improvement, right, to name yeah. another. And uh, uh, so Don was was instrumental in, in my television in, in the writing, and I think most novelists would, would agree with this, that um, nobody actually teaches you or mentors you 
I guess the people who went to the Iowa Writers Workshop might disagree with that. They might have professors that, that, that have helped them, but I never took it. I never took a fiction course. It's in our reading, our, our reading for pleasure that we learn things. So, you know, when I read Raymond Chandler, so novels from the 40s and the 50s, the Philip Marlowe novels had a huge impact on me. When I read the Florida novels of John D. MacDonald, the Travis McGee books, huge influence on me, both in terms of creating character and the backdrop and the, his concern with the environment and books that were written in the 1960s, really, really influential. Um, Tom Wolfe's uh, fiction, though our styles are nothing alike. Um, so, it, it, and of course, if you don't read, you're not going to be a writer. If you ask me one thing about mentoring or suggestions, read, 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 and then write, which it seems obvious. But some people like to talk about writing, and, and they do get into writing groups, um, sort of the, the fiction equivalent of, of the writer's room, where they meet and they go to a library or go to a bookstore and sit in the back and they talk about what they're writing and they do share things to to critique them, but they spend most of their time talking. And I, I would, I wouldn't do that. I, I think it's a waste of time. I could be wrong, but for me, it would be a waste of time. I, I, I want to, I want to create, I want to write, I want to rewrite, 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 which would be another tip. Anybody thinks their first draft is good enough. Well, they must be touched by the hand of God because nobody else can do that. Um, and so those are my scattershot suggestions. Any, um, any, you know, nuggets or, you know, if you think back to when you first kind of began your journey at at any of these professions and and you have that, had I only known this, had I just done this? Well, I would have started early. I would have practiced law shorter. (laughs) I, I would have started writing novels earlier, and I would have come to Hollywood at a reasonable age when I, when I could have had a career creating shows, because I think that that is something that um, I would have loved to do. Now, the uh, Losario and I co-created First Monday, and if you have never heard of it, that's fine. It did 13 episodes of Supreme Court shows based very, very loosely on a novel of mine, uh, originally called Nine Scorpions. I've since changed the name. Um, set at the Supreme Court, uh, a thriller. And it didn't work as a television series. That's, you know, that's fine. Most television series don't work. I, I wish I had the chance, and, and now those days are likely gone. Uh, I wish I had the chance to go back and, and do some of that again. Early Grave is the book. You want to show it to us one more time before we go? <laughs> well, I'm going to do better than that. I'm going to show you Cheater's Game. Which and is Cheater's Game. Based and, on the college admission scandal, which is still going on. Two oh, years amazing. Yeah. What's the best place to buy this to support you? Does it matter? Uh, on Amazon. If, okay. you, if you look up my name, Paul Levine, uh, all the books will come up and uh, they will be happy to sell them to you. Perfect. Or you can buy the audio. <laughs> or I can come to your home and I can read the book. <laughs> do you do 
have you done any book signings since uh, the pandemic uh, is over and people are doing those sort of things? I, I did my last one when Early Grave uh, came out uh, the first of the year, and that was at uh, the great bookstore, Books and Books in Miami. Um, but um, no more book touring for me. And, and those have really been cut back. Those mm-hmm. are, yeah. And I think uh, the website's paul-levine.com as well, right? That's it. Okay. That's it. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, Paul, this was great. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed we didn't get into to Penn State football, but we'll we'll save that for the next one. Well, welcome to Beaver Stadium, guys. Yeah. <laughs> September 2nd. Yeah. Thank you so much, Paul. This was great. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Levi. If you like what we're doing, you can visit our website, careerlabpodcast.com. Like and subscribe on YouTube and get notifications of new shows as they drop. Of course, uh, you can listen to us all on Apple uh, and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other major podcasting platforms as well. So uh, thanks for being here with us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>